I remember the rumbling. It felt like a freight train. And then I wake up feeling a swaying. A tornado tore through our small town like a giant weed whacker. When everything receded, their structure standing. There were structures immediately usable for um, aid and shelter and medical services. So clearly something's working. Engineering was working. And so our goal was to learn what worked. This is Design Safe Radio, where natural hazards researchers strive to make our society more resilient to everything nature throws at us. Thank you for joining us today on Design Safe Radio. We have our great colleague, Tracy Kajewski Correa from the University of Notre Dame, who leads the STEER team, <laughs> Structural Extreme Event Reconnaissance, and uh, brought her on today to talk about all the great work that uh, she is helping lead with the VAST STEER team. <laughs> I use the word VAST for a couple different reasons that you'll see here in shortly. Um, Tracy, thanks for being here today. I know you have got a ton on your plate, but I know this is extremely important to get out to the public about what you and the STEER team are doing and wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that. So thanks so much. Yeah, no, thank you for having us here during this crazy time of hurricane season. Yeah, it turned out to be a bit of a wild one here at the end. Huh? Uh, yeah, we, we've had a couple of periods where we were tracking four or five storms at once. So yeah, it's kept us super busy. Um, but luckily, with the exception of Dorian, it, it's been quiet from the impact side, um, though the storms themselves have been quite intense, even the ones that just hung out in the Atlantic. So it's, it's been a busy season for hurricanes, for sure. Yeah, it, it really has. And um, could you give us a, a little bit of background about what STEER is as a, as a team and the work that you guys do and, and kind of how that all works together with the wider natural hazards yeah. community. Yeah, yeah. Prior to um, establishing STEER, um, and folks uh, in the NERI community are already familiar with GEAR, which is the geotechnical kind of big brother to all of us in these extreme events, as we call them, reconnaissance uh, teams. But GEAR was doing geotechnical coordinated um, reconnaissance after major events. And there was clearly an understanding that there was a similar demand for other disciplines to engage in coordinated um, rapid response, not to be confused with the rapid funding mechanism or the rapid EF, but in this case, meaning swift response out to the field to collect data in a coordinated way. Um, for structural engineering, it's perhaps as important, if not more important than other disciplines, because once repairs um, and cleanup begins, much of our forensic evidence is gone. And so as a result, the uh, ability to get in swiftly, sample targets that give a representative um, perspective on the performance of structures under a given hazard, and I should say steer response to all hazards that would potentially impact a structure dynamically. Um, that means that we have to get in the ground pretty fast in a coordinated way. And so NSF had the idea that STEER should be uh, conceived much in the same way as GEAR to lead that kind of volunteer effort across the structural engineering community to be able to respond for these events. Um, so in 2018, we officially received funding from the National Science Foundation in the form of an eager award which gave us two years to basically prop up the governance and infrastructure to let STEER begin to um, operate. And at the request of NSF, instead of spending those two years just designing this organization with the community, we actually deployed immediately. We deployed for Florence before the money ever hit the bank. And oh, so wow. we've been deploying um, and our responses have included, I think over 
um, a dozen events thus far in the, in the two years and three major hurricanes we've actually fielded teams for with uh, Dorian being our mo most recent. So that's sort of what we do um, quickly in and out, but in a coordinated strategic way and then rapid sharing of our findings through reports and the data that we curate um, and make available in real time on Fulcrum. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, um, that's what we It's do. been really cool to be a very, very, very small part of, of that network and mostly just kind of seeing how it's all worked and being overwhelmed by it as a complete outsider. Yes, <laughs> to, it's overwhelming for sure. Um, so what are the kind of parts that go into a typical steer response? If there, if there is a typical one, <laughs> they're all a little bit different. A little different, yeah. Um, we have, um, we have um, multiple phases for the response. I would say there's a couple components that are fairly consistent. Um, one is that we're always gonna do some type of pre-event communication where we engage what's called our virtual assessment structural teams, acronym VAST. These are networks of individuals who are not yet either um, either not yet trained to deploy to the field or are field ready, but otherwise can't participate in that particular event. So they want to virtually support. And so those individuals will compile critical information um, as soon as the event unfolds, often during the landfall sequence, if it's a hurricane. So that preliminary virtual reconnaissance report comes out um, as fast as possible um, shortly after the impact. That informs then whether we send a field team. So the second phase of our deployment then is the field assessment structural team or FAST is the acronym. And in that case, um, the size and scale and even skill sets encompassing that kind of FAST response do really vary on what that preliminary report showed as the opportunities to learn from this event. Um, so in some cases, we'll send a small scout, two people, because it's a, a fairly compact event and we can learn quickly. In other events like Dorian, multiple phases, multiple sub-teams moving down to the Bahamas because of the um, dramatic opportunity to learn from, from this catastrophic hurricane um, in the Bahamas. And then as our teams return, um, the data is streaming in as fast as connectivity allows. So the virtual teams on the backside processing the data and issuing the Early Access Reconnaissance Report, the EARR. That report summarizes what the first team observed on the ground, but also gives an opportunity to identify targets um, for future study by the community. So both in the preliminary and early access report, we're really trying to signal and steer what we see as the chance for the community to learn. And if that means passing something off to one of the other EERs out there to follow up on, um, signaling to the NSF uh, leadership that there should be some rapids awarded in a given area because we see the need for the community to continue to engage. Um, and Dorian is feeding that information to the government and NGOs. Um, so mm. there's a wide range of stakeholders who might consume uh, the learning from a, um, a effort that we do. And then the final phase after that EARR hits the, you know, the, the public is then we um, continue a quality assurance and data enrichment process with our virtual team so that the final data is curated. Um, in the case of Dorian, parts of it are being released um, in near real time, again, to enable aid and recovery work that's going on in the Bahamas. Um, so different instruments, different assessment types, different size and scale. Um, but always those multiple phases of the preliminary report, the early access report, and then the long-term curated data um, evolving in three phases uh, using our virtual teams is a big part of that effort. Wow. It's, it's been really amazing to, to see just the breadth of experience you've got on, on the team, both the virtual side and the, yeah. and the fast side. What, what have you learned so far from the, just the virtual assessment that led to Obviously, to point now two fast teams. Um, what, what's come out of that uh, preliminary reporting? Yeah, um, you know, 
for Dorian, obviously, um, the losses, there's still hundreds of people missing, and it's unclear whether that number includes the thousands, possibly of undocumented migrants that were affected in the Marsh Harbor area. Wow. So, you know, this was a catastrophic event from, from all sides. And I think for Steer, it could have been very easy for us to fall into the sensationalist trap that you were seeing a lot in the media where everything's gone, everything's wiped out. So while not wanting to diminish the substantial losses that were incurred, especially in, in uh, Great Abaco Island, Steer very much wanted to learn from successes. Um, what's interesting about the Bahamas is that there are a lot of um, Floridians, Americans, but specifically Floridians, who make second homes um, in, that, in that area. They have invested in building businesses in the Bahamas. And so as a result, a lot of U.S. construction practice and approach to design has been exported to the Bahamas and now was stress tested under a Category 5 hurricane with um, significant sustained winds. Um, those who know the story of Dorian, she or he, I guess it's a he with the name it was given, you know, really camped out for an extended period of time over the Bahamas, almost, I think, 36 hours. But there was a long period of time where these Category 5 level winds were being experienced across um, this collection of islands. And so you had this significant storm surge, these strong sustained winds, um, really uh, uh, a harrowing experience if you saw the videos of people trapped in their attics trying to survive that. And yet, when everything receded, their structure standing. There were structures immediately usable for um, aid and shelter and medical services. So clearly something's working. Engineering was working. And some of the practices that were engaged by Bahamian engineers or possibly even brought over from Florida and then um, implanted in some of the communities there have worked. And so our goal was to learn what worked. And so we've been looking at residential, commercial, um, resort and hotel, as well as critical facilities that have performed well. And there are some striking um, imagery, even in the preliminary report we issued, where you would see these massive debris fields, and then there is a metal building system standing there just fine. And we've wow. seen those metal building systems, you know, fail in other hurricanes, but something worked here. And so our charge to all of our um, assessment teams is to answer the question, why did this structure make it where everything else around them is gone? And it is a little different than a stereotypical mission where we would actually sample in clusters. We would take a neighborhood, let's say, and sample every third house, damaged or not, and try to get a representative sample. While we're still trying to do that in the Bahamas, we are having an eye toward successes as much as possible because we feel there's a ton to learn about mm. why they survived. Um, and so that was the first theme. We really want to look at performance of the survivors, the successes of the event. The other thing that we're struggling a little bit with, though, um, given that the event happened in the Bahamas, is to really correlate the success story with the hazard intensity that was experienced by that structure. We do need to know the wind field and storm surge it was under. And that isn't as well documented um, or supported because this is an overseas disaster, even though it feels very close to home. And so as a result, um, one of the other, other themes that we're focused on is trying to understand the storm surge because we're not going to have as much um, U.S. government funded analysis of the possible hazards or measurements as we would um, in the U.S. if there were such an event. And so as a result, the reconstruction of the wind field and storm surge um, in this event is in part being led by some of the steer members going down later this week. So we can now link the performance to what the, the loads possibly were, at least the exposure that it felt. Mm. Um, so yeah, those are kind of the two themes we're grabbing onto. There were other themes observed around geotechnical performance as well as remote imagery as a, as a big uh, tool for us in this mission because we couldn't get on the ground as fast as steer would like. Um, because of the humanitarian crisis. So we did have some learnings along those lines, as well as three areas of learning that we hope um, people in the social sciences and policy will look at. 
because there were a lot of important um, considerations about small island nations, um, the migration um, for, of Haitians into the, the, the islands of the Bahamas that unfortunately were lost, many of their lives lost in this event, um, as well as how such a slow progressing hurricane affects evacuation preparedness. This storm was slow moving to the US, it camped out in the Bahamas for an extended period. And so forecasting and preparation is really challenged when you have these stalling storms. And we thought that would also be interesting to look at from an emergency management perspective, outside of steers purview, but the big mm. lessons. Yeah, that was, I mean, aside from the so many points you touched on was something that some of my friends in Florida mentioned was, you know, this, some of them spent thousands of dollars yep. of their own money evacuating mm -hmm. from this storm because they thought, well, you know, we are going to be severely impacted if it hits us. And we, you know, essentially lost the lottery in that. Yeah. You know. And, and there's um, a new study that just come, has come out that we cite in the, in the STEER report, the PVRR, that indicates there would be an increasing trend, at least based on data, of these hurricanes taking slow progressions or stalls due to disruptions in the circulation patterns in, in, the, in the atmosphere. Um, you know, they're attributing this to climate change, but rather to make this a political statement, there is data at least suggesting they're moving slower. For whatever mm. reason, um, we want to discuss that. The mechanisms are changing, and as a result, we will see more storms um, either dissolve and remnants remain. We saw that in Harvey, for example, in Houston, um, or slow in their progression. Dorian certainly did. And they become much more difficult to forecast when they stall like that. And that leads to a lot of what your friends in Florida experienced. And the Carolinas also lying in wait for what felt like an eternity to yeah. just have clip them and, and head out anyway, right? Wow. <clears throat> yeah. So I, I like that how you're focusing, I mean, obviously on what the facts are on the ground, mm -hmm. trying to the best you can dispel the, the myths from the media and sensationalism, yeah. which doesn't help. It, it yeah. only, you know, makes people afraid and scared and buy stuff, right? <laughs> it doesn't actually inform, which is what you guys are doing, the team uh, down there. And um, what, are, what have you found so far, like some of those success stories like you were talking about some some buildings what for folks who aren't intimately familiar with with the storm like what levels of storm surge were some of those subjected to yeah i mean we're gonna still and, and I'll, I'll withhold my my official statements on that until our team gets down this week to actually map it we have two of the leading storm surge specialists going down to actually answer that that important question awesome Coupled with that, the also important question of were there waves riding on that? Because if there's waves on top oh, of that yeah. storm surge, it's going to change dramatically the, the loading that structure feels. Um, so, you know, with that being said, one of the important lessons to learn um, for the Bahamian government um, moving forward is there was um, a general lack of elevated construction practice. And this is a very low-lying island. So one mm. of the first things that immediately um, jumps out, regardless of the height of the storm surge, which wasn't negligible and, and we believe could be on the order of 20 feet, possibly in some areas. We'll know more about that when our team gets back next week. Wow. Um, but there were, there was not substantial elevation of many of the structures. And so that would be the first thing that's, um, that's, I'm going to say a quick fix, but it's something around coastal construction practice that's well understood. It does require regulation and enforcement, obviously. And so the, this will be the charge to the Bahamian government about will the learning from this disaster at minimum turn into standards that require a minimum elevation um, mm. um, among the above the base flood elevation for uh, these coastal areas. The coastal areas definitely had that against them. Um, but the successes that were observed are across material classes. Um, at first, there was this concern like, oh, it's going to be the reinforced concrete bunkers that survive. 
Yeah. That was not the only case. Um, there were concrete buildings that didn't survive because they were under reinforced. And those were again yeah. in the areas where we think there was wave action on top of surge. But we found instances of um, wood frame construction. So single family homes uh, similar to what you'd see in Florida um, that performed completely fine. They were usable the next day with a little bit of water intrusion. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, and there were nothing about these that were spectacular. It was the same kind of mitigation features you would see in Florida, um, but continuous load path, attention to detail, um, and obviously protection of the openings and the windows um, are the kind of practices that, that do pay off. Mm. So you kind of have a strong bifurcation between um, the residences and the, and the structures that are in that, that surge zone where we could see, you know, very high um, storm surge and wave. It's a different story for them. But as you move inland, the wind performance was clearly demonstrated as something achievable with what we know in practice. So again, it affirmed engineering works. It's about um, applying it correctly and enforcing with inspection and code that it is being implemented well. And that'll be something the Bahamian government will learn about in this disaster and, and make decisions how to do going forward. Um, but then the third and, and tragic part is it is also correlated with economic capacity. It's not like it's something we don't already know. Um, but you don't see many survivors at the low income end of the spectrum. And I think that's going to be the tragic retelling here. Our successes are ones that were largely built through substantial investment, um, either clinics that were propped up and funded by major agencies or the government, um, or again, private homes that were at the higher income level. Um, or metal building systems that, again, were on higher end in terms of the attention to detail given to those. And then the losses that you see at the other end of the spectrum um, are largely driven, and, and the biggest um, you know, devastation in this event was indeed the informal settlements um, called the mud and the pigeon peas, where um, our teams do report that you know, the recovery is still ongoing and, and um, the environment and the odor suggest that there are many more lives that are lost that are still not recovered. Mm. Um, so but that really is the heartbreaking part. It fell along economic lines. So yeah, there was nothing, like I said, about it where um, we know how to handle these things. Um, and engineering can work in these instances. Again, it's just um, a question whether we have the economic capacity and then the enforcement and attention to detail needed to pull it off. Um, but I will also say that our second team going in will be able to give a lot more um, in-depth analysis. There's a number of critical facilities we didn't visit in the first trip. The first trip was just scouting kind of the high level damage and spot sampling. Our second team um, is going to have uh, the ability, especially because we have people coming in from um, Simpson Strong Tie, to really look at load path and against hurricane forces and particularly the wind driven um, effects. And we'll really be able to dive in deeper on some of these uh, particularly critical facilities that perform quite well in the government complex, the medical center, which is a brand new um, clinic and performed very well with the exception of a little bit of a roof cover loss. Mm. Um, so we'll be able to take a good look at those and even forensically figure out how strong the winds were there since there are light poles snapped literally in half adjacent oh, wow. to those buildings. So we have an idea of how strong the winds likely were. So still more work to do, I guess. Honestly. Yeah. I'm, well, I mean, with a, a event on that scale, there's going to yeah. be work for years. Um, yes, absolutely. Given that there's so much rebuilding that's going to need to be done anyway, mm -hmm. and it's more of an economic question than engineering but do you like you like you said do you think there is economic capacity to build engineered structures that will be able to withstand another event like this given... I mean, yeah, this is this is the million dollar question yeah. and i've always well that's the the real challenge i'm i i struggle with in this role is um Physics doesn't care about how much money you make or what resources you have access to, right? The physics are the same all over the world for the poor and rich alike. And so um, the idea that we have mitigation strategies that can work um, if 
implemented correctly, first part, and with the resources to, to have access to those, both the supply chain, making those materials and components available, but then the resources also to acquire them. Um, my belief is a lot of our mitigation strategies may not be accessible to everyone, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. Meaning if we take the same ingenuity that figured out the interventions that the state of Florida has used quite well to reduce its hurricane risk, and then step back and said, okay, now what if we had to do that at a 10th of the budget? What are some other ways we could configure those connections or components? What are other material choices, you know, besides wood, to be frank, you know, we build out of toothpicks in America, which is almost laughable given that we have hurricanes. You know, my, my colleagues from Europe laugh at us, right? You're putting toothpicks <laughs> in the eye of a hurricane. Yeah, it is the way we build on this continent. But I guess my point is by exploring new materials, new typologies, new connections, you might find ways of innovating a new mitigation strategy that could be consistent with the financial base that you're targeting. It's just in the U.S. we haven't received much impetus to do that. We, we just assume people have access to resources, um, you know, audaciously, right? And yeah. if we reframed engineering design to say within these constraints, I'm going to put you in a really tight box, what mitigation strategy could you come up with that actually could still take those forces, the physics that are still there? I think we could come up with things. It's just there's not many on the market. Many other success stories around the world um, pro being proliferated by NGOs, though, who are working within those constraints. So I guess there is, there is hope, but it does require a lot of ingenuity. The turnkey solutions that we have already require economic capacity that, that some in, in this story will not have. Mm. Sounds like our, our colleague and friend, Dr. David Pravat down at Florida yeah. has got his work cut out for him. I think yeah. he's, he, yeah, he's put, got you know, the, the passion, the background, mm -hmm. and, the, and the expertise to do a lot of yeah. work in that area. And we worked with David in Haiti after Hurricane Matthew, and um, and and that has a, a special place in our heart because of the Haitians that were affected in this event. We knew they were fleeing one disaster and then ended up in the crosshairs of another, which is tragic. But but the other thing that um, you know I'll also add to this effect is that we do you know we do have the opportunity to learn from these disasters and, and come together in a way that that is creative but as david noted it may also require not just a different approach to you know building but even to conceptualizing risk um in some of uh, dr pravat's writings um coming from the perspective of a caribbeanist himself um the idea of small island nations where their gdp can be wiped out by one storm and leading to a you know decadal recovery, where the same storm hits Florida and with its much more robust GDP, it's a small drop. And we saw this in Puerto Rico with Maria and in the U.S. Virgin Islands also experienced that Dominica um, in that classic 2017 season with Irma Maria and Dorian's another example. The small island nations do not have the economic capacity to absorb these storms. Perhaps require a completely different approach to risk conscious design than we would take in the U.S., where we could absorb that shock much more readily given our robust GDP even at the state level. So I think his work in those areas hopefully will ignite a conversation about how we reimagine risk, and that's been one of our findings here from our early reports. We need to have that conversation. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially, as you said, if the, these storms are increase, increasing in frequency and increasing in intensity and become those stalling storms that can mm -hmm. wipe out a whole lot of infrastructure if it's not built right, uh, hopefully these island nations will take it on mm -hmm. given their immense creativity yeah. and yeah. Uh, power to innovate and thrive and survive um, even given 
lack of resources. Hopefully they'll, yeah. they'll rise to the, the challenge and we can be there to support them. Absolutely. And I think the, the Bahamas could be a shining light in this, in that when I think about them, while it's made it logistically challenging to um, organize our reconnaissance there, because it is a collection of islands spread out with many small outlier islands around a chain of islands, um, the storm really did impact just one segment of the Bahamas which means that as a country, other islands were intact, which was great for evacuating personnel and staging recovery. Um, and it also means that some of their tourist base will remain intact. They mm. had one of the at least thriving tourist economies. Now there are some great losses obviously in the affected islands um, as a result. But that the one hope I have for a place like the Bahamas versus Haiti is that they do have this vibrant uh, tourism industry, this close connection with uh, U.S. Uh, vacationers and, and people who, who maintain residence there um, that I think will also help to, to bounce them back, uh, not diminishing the size and scope of their losses, which are, you know, in the I guess it's maybe 10 billion now. I forgot the number that I'm seeing. I know early estimates were like 7 billion, not accounting for basic infrastructure. And many of those losses were uninsured. So they have a wow. huge to kind of come out of but if any of those Caribbean economies might at least have the ability the distributed nature and the high tourist base across the islands might mean that the Bahamas have a better chance than than others wow I don't know off the top of my head where like how does that compare to actual <clears throat> the actual GDP of the Bahamas it's, I mean, it's almost one to one right now I think they're wow. 12 12 billion so if the number is is high I mean the 7 billion was an early estimate at the time of our PVRR I don't know what the final toll will be, but um, it's going to be close to on par with their GDP. And if I recall um, some of the analysis done on um, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, they were at a similar level of, you know, those two hurricanes, they felt Irma Maria being at almost GDP level events for them as well. Whew. So yeah, that's, that's why we start talking like decadal scales of recovery when you take out the GDP in one event, right? When yeah, that, that's even hard. That's hard to fathom. Right? Fathom. Like, like yeah. If that happened on that scale in the United States. Oh my gosh, yeah, right? Can you imagine? I mean, that'd be like the, I'm trying to even think well, of something that It's like the day after tomorrow that. kind of scenarios yeah. where the asteroid hits. I mean, that that's kind of the caliber we're talking, where the whole country is kind of wiped in a shot. Man. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, as a leader in, in, in risk mitigation in the, U, you know, the U.S. taking that leadership position, particularly in the Americas, um, one of the challenges with it is that the ways that we respond to risk and absorb it are from our unique, very robust co uh, concepts. And so when we export those ideas, we export our codes and our approaches to mitigation elsewhere, maybe they're not truly exportable. Maybe they shouldn't be exported because those settings don't have the ability to absorb risk the way we can. They don't have the redundancy we can. Um, and I even think about that with the Puerto Rico situation. That broke my heart because they were an island and all the ways we were used to responding, including the line of trucks you see coming into Florida after a storm to get the grid back up, suddenly doesn't work when Just they're an island. Work. Yeah, they're an island. And so some of the ways we knew how to respond in the lower 48 become a lot more challenging. When Alaska had its earthquake, it was a separate set of challenges in cold and dark and snow. We get spoiled a little bit um, by having the ability to respond so well in our connected 48 that we forget about the challenges of our other holdings that are not as connected and certainly other countries that don't have that capacity. Yeah, there's, I mean, definitely a lot of room for innovation and research um absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> how how that so some of our you know folks listening are a mix of scientists and citizen scientists how can mm -hmm. we best support um things that steer is doing and uh, other organizations that you guys support with your data in yeah. responding to events like this 
Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that, that we did want to do in STEER is definitely create the opportunity for people to join STEER and contribute even on these virtual assessment teams, even if they can't travel. So as I indicated, we're really trying to signal strongly a lot of the, I hate to say it, but the, the flashiness associated with field reconnaissance is going, right? It's the, the MacGyver moment, the Indiana Jones moment of rushing into this, you know, situation. There is some adrenaline attached to it. Um, and I can tell you that even when we go with great, um, uh, let's say, you know, respect for the situation and the awe of learning from a disaster. There is a thrill, I hate to say it with that term, of seeing the test that you had designed for on a piece of paper on a computer actually in front of your eyes. Like this is what nature actually could do. And as an engineer, it is an invigorating opportunity to recommit yourself. Like there is nothing like walking on the scene of a disaster, seeing with your eyes what the calculations told you could happen, but now seeing, um, you know, nature stress test that in front of you. And you walk away very invigorated to figure out okay how do we do better like it is uh, a one-of-a-kind experience and unfortunately we built so much around the fact that you've got to be there to get energized or to contribute and what steer wants to say is no like not true with the way that we are leveraging the rapid EFs kind of equipment and hardware the advances um, in satellite imagery and rapid scanning and mobile-based assessments, there is no reason we need to send large teams down to cover big areas, but there is every reason that dozens of citizen scientists, engineers, and other concerned citizens couldn't come and be a part of looking at what happened at disaster and, and helping us make the recommendations. Um, is everybody equipped to make some of the forensic judgments and the recommendations that Steer would make officially structural engineers? No. But there's nothing stopping people from reporting sites of damage that we should go survey, from helping to collect information on the response and how it unfolded, the government's role and in intervention, the building codes in place, the history of the storm or earthquake that we were studying. All that's on the internet. And you can look up articles and, and help write up and compile that data and share resources that our teams can use. And then from the comfort of your home, look at that data and help us enrich it. We charge our team on the ground to capture only what you had to be there to see. And all the other information we need to figure out what happened that day to that building, you actually can add later from looking at satellite imagery, looking at real estate or tax appraiser databases to figure out what was that home even made of. And that can all be done remotely um, on the backs of volunteers who don't have to have, you know, structural engineering training to the PhD level to actually be a part of, of what we do. And I, I honestly tell people that if it weren't for the virtual teams, we would not have gotten our team in the Bahamas um, last week or the second team this week, simply because someone cold called me from Florida and had heard about us in the report that our wow. virtual team put out and said, you know, we need engineers to come in. We've heard of you guys. We will, you know, send a private plane to take you down if you will collect this data that, that is needed in the Bahamas. And I said, sure, you know, because logistically we weren't sure when we could get in. Um, given that only, uh, you know, private planes that have clearance can land right now. And so, you know, Steve Peace, this um, wonderful uh, collaborator and friend that we, we formed through a cold call, heard of us because of the kind of work those virtual teams do in getting our message out and our interest in these disasters um, in the public's eye. And it, it changed everything. And we got in there um, as faster than I could have ever dreamed. It was That's amazing. amazing. Totally amazing. So yes, the point is go to steer.network, sign up. Even if you're not um, at the level that we could deploy you in a team um, or have you lead a team on the ground, I guess my point is there is so much good work to be done from the comfort of your home that really has an impact. And people are looking, NGOs and the government alike, at the data that our teams are collecting to make decisions and you can be a part of helping them um, just by working from your computer. Awesome. We'll make sure to put links to where everybody can 
sign up for that uh, to get on the next vast, get ready for yep. that. There's a, a little bit of training to, yep. you know, kind of figure out all the formatting and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, it's, I mean, I went through it myself. Unfortunately, yeah. it was kind of bad timing that we yeah. can talk about other ways. Um, I wasn't able to participate as much as I would have liked on the, this last vast, yep. <laughs> but um, it's really easy and, and yep. uh, straightforward to get up and going and, and participate. So and, and great I will work say, on putting that th- training yeah, thank together. Thank you, Dan. Um, and I will say that because we started responding before we could build everything, um, that's my one regret. We didn't want to pass up the opportunity to contribute to events that happened during our watch. But at the same time, that meant that a lot of the training modules we wanted to have, um, we had to delay in our offering now moving into this year and next year. So we have webinars like Dan described that I'll get you acclimated, but we're going to be releasing much more extensive modules to train people and build their confidence in doing this work. Um, We just uh, ask the community's continued patience with us. We have had more events than we would have liked to, uh, to respond to including this one, but that's our goal is to help everybody have chance to train and calibrate. So we're coordinated in our efforts uh, to work on these events. Yeah, that's really awesome. I mean, in, in the short amount of time you had to put that together, it was a really great amount of information. Thank you. Yeah, we, we, were, uh, we were proud of ourselves and, and we remain proud of our team's hard work to get this propped up pretty quickly in an active season, for sure. Yeah, definitely rightfully so. Um, and I want to let you get back to all of the amazing st- work that you've got to do today. Yep, second team is this. getting ready to roll on Friday. So, yep. Awesome. Um, is there anywhere else that you would like to point folks to to, to follow along with your work or any, yeah. any parting thoughts you'd like to share? Absolutely. So, again, um, steer.network, S-T-E-E-R.network is our website. We have all the information about our responses to different events and how you can sign up. So that would be one spot. We also maintain a Slack cha- channel, hashtag steer. Um, on the Design Safe Slack, and that's another place we post information. I really would encourage people to get active on Slack. Um, Steer does all of its work through Slack, um, especially when we coordinate and respond to events. It is for us the only way to survive the deluge of information and logistics. Um, so if you have not made your Design Safe account to join Steer, you have to. We require that. And we require that you be active in Slack um, because we will push you toward that as the platform that we um, engage. And I'm loving watching people sharing information and and collaborating virtually. Um, it's a beautiful thing to watch. So I want to encourage more of the community to take advantage of that. Um, so those are two homework assignments, if you will. Join DesignSafe and get your Slack account set up. Then come on over to steer.network, sign up to join Steer. And then when there's an event, you'll receive an email from me saying it's time to come to Slack and get to work. And I hope we'll see you there. Fantastic. We'll make sure to put links to all that in the show notes Perfect. for everybody and on the blog post for this. Thank you so much for your time, Tracy. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, It was my pleasure. So let us know if there's anything more we can do to help. Will do. All right. Cool. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Design Safe Radio. This show is sponsored by the National Science Foundation grant number 1612144. You can subscribe to Design Safe Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please leave us a review so we can improve the show. Please also help others find our episodes in iTunes. Thanks for your feedback and support. You can find out more about NARI at designsafe-ci.org, on Facebook at Design Safe Radio, or on Twitter at NARI Design Safe. <laughs>